Hi. Uh, good evening. I'm Marshall Price. I'm the Curator of Modern and Contemporary Art at the National Academy. And I approve this message. <laughs> um, welcome to the October issue of the review panel uh, here at the National Academy. Um, before I introduce tonight's moderator, I would just like to draw your attention to um, the current exhibition here at the National Academy, John Cage, The Site of Silence. We have an extensive um, series of public programs. Um, so I hope on your way out this evening you'll pick one of these up. Uh, tomorrow, for example, we have um, Cage on Marley on Vinyl, which is a collaboration with Norte Mar. It's a seven hour long um, dance performance uh, throughout the day. So you can drop in and drop out as you wish um, and see some wonderful uh, contemporary dance. So with that being said, uh, I'd like to introduce the moderator, the review panel, uh, David Cohen, who is uh, publisher and editor of artcritical.com and um, been a wonderful partner in this ongoing series, which um, is a joint venture between Art Critical and the National Academy. So, David. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. It, it is indeed a wonderful relationship between uh, an independent art magazine on the web and one of the nation's most venerable uh, institutions, Academy of uh, Distinguished Artists, uh, School, Museum, and it really is uh, an honor and a, and a pleasure. Um, uh, this is the first review panel uh, where the moderator and founder has been late. And so uh, that makes it a historic occasion. Um, all I can say is uh, if you are a user of Dropbox, don't assume that a 126 megabyte PowerPoint created on one device is necessarily uh, waiting for you on your laptop. Anyway. Um, such techno-drivel aside, let me uh, say what a pleasure it is to see you all, uh, to welcome back uh, two uh, now veteran members of the review panel, and to welcome a third who is uh, on her maiden voyage, so to speak, with this, uh, uh, this program. Who's here for the first time? Who's never been to the review panel? Anybody? Right. Okay. Well, for your benefit and for our new guest, uh, Phoebe Hoban's uh, benefit, although uh, I trust she has done a little homework on the subject, let me just give a very quick rundown as to what we do on the review panel. We look at four current art exhibitions that are open at least a couple of weeks before we meet and open through today and perhaps tomorrow. So perhaps you'll be stimulated by the debate to run along tomorrow morning and catch these controversial shows. Uh, so, we have a little PowerPoint presentation, that fabled 126 megabyte PowerPoint presentation to show you um, uh, to, and also to refresh our memories as to what we've seen. Uh, we look at a couple of shows on PowerPoint, the panel discusses it, um, uh, those two shows. Uh, the audience then has a chance to let off a little steam and then we repeat the exercise and then we go off into the mild fall evening to enjoy the rest of our day. Now, uh, my next duty, pleasurable one, is to introduce um, our panelists and uh, quiz them on what they're up to these days. Donald Cuspit, if we were to give a, a, a full and accurate description of his career so far, uh, we wouldn't have much time to discuss any shows afterwards. He's probably 
one of the more venerable art critics in America, if not the world. He is uh, author of numerous uh, books. Uh, he is, uh, uh, has a distinction of um, holding advanced or terminal degrees, both in art history, uh, philosophy, and, well, art history and philosophy, philosophy and psychoanalysis. So uh, we don't argue with him on uh, Freudian definitions, but we may differ with him uh, on matters of taste. Uh, Don, what, what projects are keeping you busy at the moment? Oh, whatever confirms that I'm battle-scarred. Good. We're sort of quasi-doing sound tests as well, so good thing to do, um, if I could tell uh, somebody with three doctorates, a good thing to do is to not cover your mouth with your hand, and uh, uh, this funny silver thing, pretend, pretend it's uh, Marilyn Monroe or something. Oh, God. Yes. Okay. <laughs> well, perhaps you'd then be running a mile, and we don't want that to happen. Um, another guest I'm welcoming back to my left, your right, is Nora Griffin. Um, uh, spell check on the uh, announced label there. Um, one of my favorite Henry Moore sculptures, perhaps you know the one, Don, is uh, Mother and Child 1953. It uh, comes uh, from a, a primitive source, uh, a Mesopotamian source, I think. And um, uh, it's a, the baby is looking rather ferociously at the breast. And uh, everyone said to Henry Moore at the time, is he, is, is, is he trying to, to, to kill her? And uh, uh, no, no, he's, Henry Moore said he's just trying to gnaw her. And consequently, this sculpture, Mother and Child, 1953, gained the nickname in the Henry Moore studio of Nora. So um, we, have, uh, we have a Nora with us this evening. Uh, but uh, she's going to be sinking her teeth into the subjects, uh, uh, not the co-panelists, we hope. Uh, the, the youngest panelist may, may have some eatable issues with uh, this father of art criticism to my, to my right. But we'll see. I'm, I'm here to keep the peace. Nora is... Uh, Nora and daughter have always had family relations. Right. Yes. Excellent. Um, yes. Both Freud and Moore. That's true. Um, so uh, Nora is a, is a writer for um, the Brooklyn Rail and Art Critical and other publications. She's uh, uh, primarily, however, an artist. Recently finished her graduate studies uh, after already having quite a, uh, a distinguished uh, uh, resume as, a, as an exhibiting artist uh, at Columbia. And uh, what are you up to now, apart from, apart from making art, what are you up to in the critical world? Oh, um, I mean, I'm always looking for new shows to, that, are, that will, you know, jumpstart my um, interest in writing about art. But it's hard to balance making art and writing about art. Right. So that's my challenge right now. Right. Well, if you've got a show that you think uh, will stimulate Nora, perhaps her own, uh, let her know. And uh, she can let me know, and we'll, you never know what might happen next. And um, my, my third guest, uh, um, Phoebe Hoban, uh, uh, a writer on the scene and uh, one of our distinguished uh, writers of uh, artist biographies, author of uh, uh, two volumes on, on many serious uh, art lovers' shelves, um, uh, Jean uh, Basquiat, Making a Killing in the Art World? Yeah, uh, Basquiat, A Quick Killing in Art. A Quick Killing in Art, yes, okay. Um, and, um, and more recently, uh, her, her biography of uh, Alice Neal, full title is? Alice Neal, The Art of Not Sitting Pretty. Right. And uh, uh, tell us, uh, well, we don't necessarily, it's not necessarily, you're not necessarily at liberty to divulge your next victim, <laughs> but uh, tell us something that's keeping you busy at the moment. 
Um, well, I'm doing a, a number of pieces for various magazines, ranging from your Art Critical to um, things for Art News, um, ranging from art reviews to small features. Um, I've recently started writing for the Wall Street Journal um, on a freelance basis and just did something on Yayoi Kusama and on Thomas Hirschhorn, and I have something coming up in November. And I, ha I do have a third biographical subject, um, which I can't divulge at the moment, but it's a much, unlike my other tomes, each of which took up like a third of my life, this one is going to take up more, more like a year, thank God. Um, but like my other subjects, he's dead, so he can't complain, although his family and his estate certainly can and, and probably will. Um, at least that's my experience. And the only other thing I wanted to mention is I'm a long-standing member of the National Arts Club, which, um, as many of you have been reading in the paper, has been going through lots of changes, and I'm very interested in doing, um, in programming some panels there. So if anybody, including David, has some suggestions or things they would like to hear um, panels address, please let me know at the end of this discussion. Fantastic. Well, you're on a panel with two gentlemen who took place <laughs> In uh, January, on January the twentieth, uh, January the twentieth, nineteen ninety-nine, uh, took place at the uh, in the Ruskiniad at the National Arts Club, oh. where we both read our favourite passages from yes. John Ruskin. Oh. So uh, we will be back for some other such event, uh, providing there's sherry and uh, cheese. Good. <laughs> so now let's uh, dim the lights and look at the powerpoints of the first couple of shows. So, discovering Columbus, only in New York, as they say, except, of course, um, this is uh, a, a, a venture that uh, the, the artist is responsible for in any number of cities now. Um, uh, Phoebe Hoban, um, Phoebe, um, if nothing else, we get to see a sculpture in a greater intimacy than we will ever have seen it before, having passed uh, 59th Street and um, 8th Avenue any number of times in our lives. Um, indeed, the ascent um, up those stairs was uh, uh, an opportunity to savor the actual uh, carved reliefs and ornaments on the, the column, which one would never have otherwise um, uh, have seen. Um, what kind of experience did you have once you, once you reached the room? Well, I thought it was um, a, definitely a New York experience. Um, as, a, as a city that has fallen madly in love with the High Line, I, I love the fact that, it's, um, that, that it was elevated and it gave you different views of the city, so it was both an interior and exterior space. And I love the fact that it was such a sort of banal living room, but it had all these very personal touches. Um, the PowerPoint is gone, but the wallpaper was quite unique. It was a pinkish color, uh, kind of strange, with a light green pattern of Empire State Buildings, Elvis Presley's, and Mickey Mouse's. Mm -hmm. And that was clearly the artist's sort of reference to American iconography. And he actually designed, um, designed the wallpaper himself. If you looked carefully at the bookcase, the bookcase um, almost exclusively held um, volumes about um, New York history, architecture, and culture, ranging from baseball to the opera. And um, every day they would replace the magazines and newspapers. So there was a Financial Times and New York Times. You know, they one of, on the coffee tables. Yes. Um, and they had the they had a flat screen TV permanently tuned to CNN. Um, and that was partly because the artists liked the contrast of the very current with the sort of 
antique uh, of the uh, sculpture of Columbus discovering America. I think one of the things that's amazing about New York, which is a cliche, is that when you walk around it, you're constantly noticing new architectural things that you've never seen before. And I can't say that I have ever in my life looked at the Statue of Columbus before. Mm. Mm. I mean, Columbus Circle is a destination, but when do you ever look at it? And last but not least, the scale was a very nice kind of joke, which was that, you know, here you have this enormous Columbus that dwarfs everything in the living room, but the living room was normal human scale. So I thought it was a really wonderful example of um, public art that was also an installation piece, and it was interactive in the sense that you could walk through it and look out of it and look into it, um, and it was relatively self-explanatory and unpretentious, so I thought it was quite a successful project. Right. Uh, so, Nora, it's public art about public art uh, that, uh, that takes as its central conceit um, uh, privacy. I mean, you, you, you're, you, you uh, for the few moments, you know, for the quarter of an hour that you can spend up there, uh, you have your own uh, living room uh, with an unusual sculptural presence within it, uh, but with rather spectacular uh, views. Uh, you can't order a coffee, unfortunately. But uh, uh, is it uh, just a kind of quirky, fun, light New York experience, or is there something of profundity in this work? Well, <clears throat> well I, I approached it thinking that there would be um, some kind of implicit critique of Columbus um, as a historical figure or... Um, of uh, kind of colonialism in general, not really knowing too much about the artist or about the work. Um, so I was, I was quite surprised when I uh, climbed the steps and actually came into the room and um, was kind of shocked by the gentleness of it and um, just the all-around pleasantness of uh, being in a light-filled room. And um, I, I was also struck by... Um, how people rush to take their photograph in front of the statue, almost as if the statue was a personification of Columbus as a celebrity. Um, and also just, that's, so it goes back to the way that we now experience any kind of art event. We have to take an image of ourselves within the event. There were very few people that were just sitting. I was probably the only person that was kind of looking around without imaging myself within the installation, so I found that was quite interesting. Did you find that uh, you were um, really primarily engaging with uh, with the sculpt with the the sculpture and the installation, or was it actually the the, the strange kind of social mechanics of the event um, of of one one becomes a witness to one's fellow witnesses, doesn't one? And it's um, kind of difficult to have. Um, maybe the same experience that one would have if it was just uh, an installation where there's only two or three people at a time wandering through and it's no big deal to get to it. Yeah, it actually, this seems to, it seems to be a lot about being with their fellow New Yorkers, a lot of whom I, I felt were tourists too. Um, and I waited online for a half hour. That was kind of part of the piece for me was the process of, of waiting, um, which was a little unpleasant. But mm. then you kind of are rewarded once you mm. enter the space um, but I also, I did take in the, the interior decoration. Um, it felt very mid-century modern to me. Um, it, uh, there are prints of de Kooning on the wall and the, the wallpaper with Elvis and Marilyn Monroe and almost like a generic um, 40s, 50s decor. Um, and I, I wondered what it would be like if the installation that the decor had been maybe overblown tacky or 
just more more contemporary in a way because it just read as very stylish mm. New York yeah. and not really about America at all. I felt. Or even if it just had just been Tatsu Nishi's actual uh, living room, wherever that uh, is permanently stationed. Uh, Don, um, the very experience of though um, a legendary, quasi-legendary. Uh, 19th century sculpture overblown and oversized in a, a, a highly improbable context is actually a kind of juxtaposition that's probably very familiar to anybody uh, used to, say, Max Ernst, um, uh, Semaine de Bonté, or the uh, um, uh, Tête. Um, I, I wonder, uh, is this, uh, was this project really doing something audacious? Is it somewhat treading water within um, a sort of Dada um, institutionalized, you could say, Dada gesture. Well, I think uh, connecting it to Max Ernst is giving it more credit than it's due. I think the way to grab a hold of it uh, myself is to revive Clement Greenberg's idea of uh, novelty art. Um, it's a uh, version of uh, conceptual art, basically, if you think conceptual art is art. Um, and uh, I would argue, I would myself call it pizza art, uh, and it, what it does to Italy there, but I think the main point of it uh, is it's really designed as a tourist attraction. Uh, Columbus Circle uh, is a central kind of little center in New York. Uh, a lot of buses go through there, a lot of subways of different lines go through there. Uh, Broadway is broken there. You're uh, about a half a dozen blocks from Lincoln Center. Uh, people will go there. There's the entrance to Central Park there. Now, that's part of it. Uh, I think also what he's done is cut Columbus down to size, taken this gigantic mm -hmm. statue, whether you can see it up there or not, and you can see it from the Time Warner building if you go inside, mm -hmm. clearly, uh, and put it in a living room, uh, make it a piece of kitsch, as it mm -hmm. were, mm -hmm. uh, commonplace. Um, and I thought the whole thing was um, very uh, trendy, and its idea that all works are, so to say, equal, which mm -hmm. means none of them are quite valuable, so you put a de Kooning there with yes. some comic strip or whatever, and it's a very sort of, quote, quasi-postmodern, or what used to mm. be called one of the definitions of postmodern stance. I thought it uh, was amusing, basically, um, and it did what I think Bloomberg wants to do, is add uh, to the 50 million tourists who come here and give mm. them something else to give them a small thrill. Um, beyond that, I thought it was uh, essentially a banal thing, but it did signal something else. It's a Japanese artist dealing with an, a monument to an Italian uh, in a signaling that uh, in a living room context where there's all kinds of art. So it signals that uh, basically New York is a kind of uh, international city. I think that's, mm -hmm. that's part, part of the notion of it. Mm. Um, it may also uh, signal... Uh, an Asiatic takeover of New York, or at least the United States, uh, I think that uh, is something in everybody's mind, although Japan is not China. Um, but um, I thought the work was uh, basically overblown, clever, uh, sort of clever kind of thing, and very attention-grabbing just simply by its location. Uh, it had to be attention-grabbing and uh, its novelty uh, drew people. It was something else to see. 
okay. uh, in New York. Yes, right. Tourist attraction, a little bit of uh, uh, Disney da-da. Um, so, Phoebe, uh, 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 do, do, you, do you buy Don's take there? Is that a little well, harsh? Well, I would agree with him. I mean, I pronounce banal banal, and I've never... Oh. I don't know which is the correct <laughs> pronunciation, but You're I do probably think... Correct. No, I, I've heard it both ways, and I, I do... I would say that the art was... It, the artwork was banal, whether deliberately or not, and I don't consider it by any means high art or even low art. I mean, I think it's very commercial art, and I think it's meant to be a tourist attraction, so I don't think... I, I wouldn't elevate it in my mind to, like, great conceptual art or installation art. I mean, yes, it had... I, Disney data is a great term for it. I yeah. mean, it, it does have a reference to surrealism because of the scale, because of the combination of elements in it, but, I, I mean, it's sort of almost too trivial to criticize. I mean, it, it's not... I wouldn't... It's, it's, it's not an artwork that I would write a review of, for instance, because I don't think of it as something that's attempting as such to be art. It's, it's attempting to be sort of a project, and as a project, it succeeds, as far as I can tell. It's attracting tourists, it's giving New Yorkers a different view of the city and of the sculpture, and it's fun. Hmm. There's nothing wrong with going and looking at art that's fun occasionally. That's true. I, I, <laughs> I, I went hoping to either be... Uh, like like uh, Rilke with his poem to the uh, uh, archaic, the, the the torso of Apollo. You know, I wanted the sculpture either to say change your life, or I wanted to have a profoundly indignant experience and be able to rant about. Uh, you know, the point uh, of it is to keep art. your life the same. Uh, and you say it's, it did seem to say keep your life the same, and uh, New York is fun, and uh, uh, yeah, lighten up. This uh, you know this is just an, an, a New York experience rather than an aesthetic experience. Um, but um, in a funny way, though, um, yeah, banal, banal, however one wants to say it, it's, it's, it's got a lot of that going on. And yet, um, maybe actually part of its banality, Nora, is that it presses all the right buttons to be the opposite, uh, to actually be uh, profound and political and, uh, uh, and to be about uh, the big dichotomies, public and private, uh, contemporary and historic, blah, blah, blah. In other words, it's as if, it's, as if somebody... It's as like a pre-printed um, form on how to make profoundly important public art, and the artists have checked every box, um, and yet somehow it didn't really add up to anything more than fun. Did I miss something? Well, it's almost it felt so restrained. There was so much that it, it could have been. There could have been if it was um, just a white cube around the statue, or if it was a completely different room. It could have been a, a work of art that actually. Made something happen. The fact that it was it was still um, mm. um, kind of c contributed to it being just you know a kind of throwaway fun. I mean, I didn't really find it fun actually, but mm. um, I also I think there, there's a little of a, of a problem when you make art about um, a city landmark. Um, I actually I didn't see the gates. I don't think I was mm. I was here that year. Don't but, it seems it, it's kind of like gilding the lily in a way. If you're making something already about a a, a, a work of the city, already to me is, is a work of art, and mm -hmm. um, its sculptures, its monuments, its buildings. To kind of put art on top of that, art, uh, populist art on top of that, I think there's going to be problems there. They could be very interesting problems, but I think with the Columbus statue, the problems weren't that interesting. Yes, it's sort of icing on. It's 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 um, yeah, slightly saccharine icing on already yeah. very tasty cake. Yes. Uh, okay. Well, I thought it was a what? sort of Hollywood set waiting for the actors, and the people yeah. who visited were the actors. Yes. And it was more amusing to watch the people than well, that's the tends to be. Yeah. 
very and surface. I think what Nora said about, um, you know, it didn't, obviously Columbus is a great example of colonialism, and if the if Columbus had been surrounded by diagrams of syphilis and how it, you know, hmm. <laughs> pretty much destroyed part of the Native American population, then it would have been a political piece of art. I mean, he deliberately stayed away from anything political, and I just wanted to contrast it to another piece of installation art that isn't public, but it was up concurrently, which was Thomas Hirschhorn's Concordia Concordia um, at the Barbara Gladstone Gallery, which I, I watched it being made, and I do think that that managed to have an effect that this does not, um, because it, while not delving deeply into the politics of, you know, um, of cruise ships and of, uh, of sort of um, greed and of um, really bad kitsch culture and of the irresponsibility of the cruise ship line when it came to um, the safety of its passengers, um, it nonetheless did evoke all of that. And mm -hmm. it evoked it, in, I thought, in a much more imaginative and artistic way. I mean, I would call that art. You might not like it. You might think it was too in your face. You might think it didn't actually create the real situation in the Concordia or didn't go into any of them in enough depth. But it was something that you could sink your teeth into. And right. this is just a treehouse. You know, it's a really <laughs> cool treehouse, in my opinion. Don't you think the Hirsch one was sort of a version of Damien Hirst uh, in some way, uh, sort of the pile of junk in the studio that he's exhibited uh, sometime? Uh, and don't you think it's very easy to be, quote, politically evocative uh, it's almost cliches to uh, be critical now of whatever you want to be critical uh, of. And don't you think it's just sort of not only hers, but a leftover kind of three-dimensional collaging, uh, a very old idea, uh, some getting its sensation. And it's the evocation in the imagery which seems to me uh, makes the whole thing uh, count and sort of the theory behind it. It's sort of theory-driven art that makes it count more than the installation uh, itself. I think there's a danger there, Dom. There's a show that not all of us saw, and Phoebe's bring it up as a contrast, but um, uh, rather uh, in, in scale rather than necessarily um, an intensity and uh, engagement. But, um, but those points are, are totally valid, definitely, in relation to... I just want to say something. All of this is a version of what uh, Alan Capro called post-art mm. many, many years ago when he talked about mm -hmm. the education of the unartist. And he pointed out that the, what has been called now cliched, the breakdown of the boundaries between art and life. And I always mm -hmm. like to add at the expense of both. Uh, you know, that, yes. That's my own thought. But right. Capro uh, famously said you know, that uh, there is no art that could compete with a rocket to the moon, or mm -hmm. uh, the best architecture was these gas stations on the highway with a few stilts. And, yeah. cover and so forth, and he thought uh, finally there was no point to art, which is quite interesting since he began as an expressionist painter, uh, as you may know, uh, and he essentially uh, just went into installations and... Uh, well, just. He, he, I'm sorry? You say just went into installation? I mean, as in exclusively or as in uh, as a diminution of his ambition? No, I was not talking about John's. I'm, I know, talking about uh, Keenholz, yes? Yeah, uh, no, no, I'm talking about Capro. Cap Capro, Capro, I mean, Capro's Capro. ideas. Oh, Capro, right. And I think Capro reached a sort of very significant oh. point, uh, which I happen to know about. Uh, many years ago at the University of Barcelona, he was invited... Uh, very reluctantly uh, accepted. It was by a critic in a Barcelona newspaper, and he was asked what he would do, and he said he didn't know until he got there. So when he got there, 
what he did is he asked all the students and anybody else who wanted to mop the floors for three days of the art building that was there. And then we would sit and analyze it. So you can do that, okay? Uh, and the question I ask is, why do you want to call it art? Why do you even want to append the idea of art to this activity? Right. Well, what are we talking about anymore? It, it, yeah, yeah. You know, it's sort of like the, Don, what we call uh, the anything goes idea now. Yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, these are, these are the perennial issues, and yeah. one should never skirt the big issues uh, and use the excuse of having three more shows to look at to curtail well, a philosophically interesting debate. But okay. uh, my job is to be boring and banal and uh, <laughs> anal. So let's now look at Michelle Stewart. Um, and Don, let me start with you. Uh, let me ask you, let me say to you... Um, uh, this is a show, let me tell you, let me confide in you, this is a show that almost like the uh, last show had, had one thing in common. I mean, it had many things not in common. It couldn't have been a more kind of restrained, scholarly, private sort of experience compared to the funfair aspect of, uh, of discovering Columbus. Uh, but um, the one thing it had in common is that I, um, well, I came in not knowing whether I to, to love it or hate it. I... Um, you know, I, I felt that it was, uh, it had uh, many virtues to it, but I, I, I sort of came out, each time I saw it, came out thinking, my God, I got to sit down in public in front of an audience of people and have a strong opinion on, on Michelle Stewart, who's considered a, a distinguished veteran. And yet, the only thing I can go away with thinking, apart from really liking many of the individual images that she's gathered, is thinking, is it possible to put diverse images into a grid without it looking like a school geography project? Interesting. Uh, the grid is, I mean, you've talked, you've, you've, you've talked many times about how institutionalized Dada is like the curse of our times. Um, Rosalind E. Krauss has written a brilliant seminal essay on the grid. I wonder if somebody could now put the two together, a sort of Krausian, Cuspitian analysis, and say, maybe it's the grid that's uh, one of our curses. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, Rudolf Anheim uh, argued uh, in his book, Entropy and Art, uh, that the grid uh, was a sort of say, symbol of, in a way, of homogenizing uh, art, uh, and it was a symbol of, uh, of leveling of all the images. And as you know, uh, for example, Richter used the grid in the first work, one of the first works that made him famous in the Cologne and Ludwig Museum now, with mm -hmm. the images of all these different people, all well known from different areas, taken from the yeah. encyclopedias, and he just put them up and they're all the same, they're all leveled, a uh, part Absolutely. of what he called, he's doing nothing, it's one way to interpret it, nihilistic, okay. Mm -hmm. uh, like the album, you know, 50 images of sunsets, 50 images of girls, 50 images of this, that, and the other thing. So, uh, for me, uh, the difference is the following, and I've sort of approached it in a different way, perhaps because I've known Michelle for a long time, uh, so I may be prejudiced in her favor. But I saw, uh, first, I didn't quite buy the palimpsest title. I think I know mm -hmm. what a palimpsest is. I thought these were sort of photo manipulations. But what I saw was a certain kind of aesthetic subtlety mm -hmm. uh, in individual images, uh, a kind of very interesting nuancing that was occurring. The images were nuanced. Uh, there were, in some of them, some very interesting, let's say, light-dark relations. She was, I think, delving into the history of photography to some extent uh, in some of the works as well. She was signaling a past, 
uh, and she was signaling also her own past to some extent and her own environment. So while the work had uh, her world, as it were, uh, and in that sense was very much you know, the modern artist's concern with the self, if you want to call it narcissism, uh, but there was also uh, some other things going on there which gave the work some kind of, uh, shall we say, expansive meaning beyond her own uh, referencing her own existence or things yes. from her own life or places she's been, etc. So uh, that's the thing. Now the, the grid idea is what I think she was trying to do. It's hard to, it was like a scrapbook in some sense. Uh -huh. It was like laying out a scrapbook. And it was a little too neat, mm -hmm. okay? So if you read a row across, each sort of neutralized the other. That's not exactly the right word, neutralized, but uh, somehow um, it didn't give each its full due. Right, but and hopefully the sum is greater than the individual parts. I was not certain of, of that. I felt right. the individual uh -huh. parts uh, counted for more than the sum. Uh, right. And I was not always certain what the sum was. I was not always certain what it added up to whether it added up to a, right. an integral whole, there was some, so to say, quote, secret meaning implicitly connected, an underground unconscious meaning that was connected them. Hmm. In certain instances, I think I got it, particularly in the, quote, nature references work. Uh, in the personal references work, I thought I got it to some extent yes. uh, as well. Uh, but it uh, was not clear. But uh, it did have this incoherence in yes. a curious way, which is, quote, very modern mm -hmm. uh, as well, and I think... A sort of provisional of quality. Provisional quality, if you want to call it right. that, yes. yes. Uh, I think uh, she did a good job at that. Good job of being provisional, yes. Uh, provisional uh, Nora, and suggestive. Yeah. Suggestive. Provisional, suggestive. But, Nora, when I say, when I complain about the grid, let me be, let me be clear about one thing mm -hmm. to save my reputation, what little remains of my reputation as somebody who can speak with any coherence on modern art, which is to say that when the grid um, is serial, and when, it, when the grid is working with uh, some, some degree of genericness or, or repetition, that's when I think it derives its uh, particular potency and charge. I love, I love the Beckers, um, uh, and I, I love Sean Scully. Now, those are two very extremely different artists, but they're both... Uh, they both energize, uh, they both utilize the grid, but understanding that, 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 it's, uh, that the matrix works when the contents have uh, some, some very sort of nuanced differentiation. Do you, do you think the grid works to, to Stuart's uh, favor? Well, I don't really see it as, as a grid. I saw it more as a storyboard, because um, also the individual pieces, um, they, they were there was different spaces between them in, in different works. So it wasn't like there was one uniform grid she was following. Um, and there was a kind of a sense of an experimentation, almost like a lab ex experiment. And I saw the work almost like as if there were specimens and um, kind of behind glass. I think the way they were framed is really important too. Um, I was trying to figure out how that was done actually. It looks like they're almost as if they're like a butterfly. The photographs are kind of, um, pressed with a, a glass right in front of it, and then there's like a black um, metal around it too that seems kind of casual, but also um, very uh, very thought out too. I, I thought it was really interesting how it, very, it, it really, for me, restored mystery to photography. Right. Um, and to me, it was really, it's kind of about 
the emergence of a viewing public in, in America, um, the turn of the century, in the 19th century, and um, about how, how um, uh, violence and entertainment are so closely linked. A lot of the photographs, um, she, I think she created a lot of them. Um, they're manipulated, but they look like they're found photographs. Yes, that's, 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 um, a, that's a curiosity about them, isn't it? Yeah. They're, they're, they're found, but they, 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 they're, they are made, but they look found. They have a period feel to them. Um, Phoebe, did you, were you, did you find a, a very distinct, pervasive mood? Were there stories that generating in your mind as a result of these images? How did it work for you? Um, well, I don't know if I want to really answer that question head on, but okay. um, just to go back to the grid for a moment... Um, I agree with Nora. I mean, I think, I, and I agree with you. I think the grid is useful when it generates tension, um, because the content um, is sort of almost the opposite of the formality of a grid. And the artists that have most succeeded with using a grid are almost working against the grid. But I didn't find the grid superimposed on this. To me, this, these were like two-dimensional Cornell boxes. They're very um, lyrical. They're very evocative. The individual images are quite beautiful and haunting. I would say they suffer from their multiplicity. Um, it's very, it was, I felt overwhelmed. Um, I mean, knowing that, especially that I would have to be able to say something about it, confronted with a grouping which is meant to be almost, interestingly, Leslie Tokenau said, told me that, I mean, each one of these grids, if you want to call it that, or storyboards, is considered one piece. Right, sure. And considering that one piece contains in it 60 tiny squares, like a crossword puzzle, I found it, I'm, I'm sorry, I found it a bit overwhelming to try to take in that many images. That said, I didn't really think they were provisional in the sense that um, each, each piece, and I think there were eight of them or something, had a theme. I mean, one was death, one was war, one seemed to be sort of ephemera, you know, the ephemera of beauty and nature, like feathers and butterflies and so on. So they were thematic, but... Um, to me, it was difficult to digest that many images at one time, and I found it, I wouldn't say annoying so much as kind of overwhelming, and in that sense, even though the images played off each other, I would agree with um, Donald and that they didn't build to a climax. In some cases, they almost took away from each other because there were just too many of them. Yeah, I felt if I could have seen less of them, but at a bigger scale, and, and as individual images to be relished and in a row around the gallery, that would have encouraged me to make my own grids or mm -hmm. my own matrices, uh, which would have, uh, I, I feel, been probably more satisfying. And yet, and funny enough, I, as somebody who loves still images and is, is a slow adapter to video, this is, this is a body of material that almost feels like it would have been better as a slideshow or a, in a sort of um, uh, either a Cara Walker or, or a Nan Golden type uh, structure where one could uh, actually have the element of time rather than space as the, as the filler between images. Isn't, isn't part of the point of the grid that the collective counts more than the individual? Absolutely. So the individual piece gets lost there. Isn't also a grid a sort of standard, even stereotype, modern device? Uh, there is no priority given to any image, um, mm -hmm. and uh, there's a kind of quasi-universality mm -hmm. suggested, if not confirmed, uh, by the grid. Um, I, I agree with you completely that if each element in the grid was the same module, as it mm -hmm. were, uh, it might have a different effect. But then that would be the monotone, the monotonous kind of thing that has been talked about. 
Well, yes. If it's yeah. completely identical, then it's then it's just monotony. monotony. If it's completely, if it's uh, startlingly contrastive, mm -hmm. then it's uh, just a cliched format. Mm -hmm. But there's this, I think there's a middle ground where one has the same genus but distinct variants, mm -hmm. and that's what you get in, say, the Beckers, for instance, yeah. uh, and it's what you get in, I think. But sometimes it's what you get in. But they're not such John, big grids. Not. They're not such right. huge grids. Exactly. I wonder if she was in some way trying to bombard us to give us a variety mm. of sensations sort of quickly, and that would confirm, uh, support your idea that uh, maybe uh, this should have been a slideshow. It might have mm. had, and, and time is the dimension. Yeah. Um, that, that I think made it, would have made it in a way more interesting. Because when you look at a Becker, it's usually three by three. Right. Um, and when you look at it, it, it has a singular gestalt exactly. because of that, because it's, it's few enough. When you look at a, a, a Scully or a Johns uh, uh, or, or a Marden, when they use the, the, the grid, again, there's, there's, there is the gestalt that the, the, the grid generates. But when you've got uh, a huge grid or storyboard, whichever you want, if, well, if that's... If, it's a, if it doesn't have a single gestalt and you have to read it left to right, then it's a storyboard, not a grid, I think Michael might say. I think she was trying to arrange her uh, memory traces and to find some kind of grouping of memories or memorable right. experiences or give you some memorable experience. But after all, photography is time-bound. Mm -hmm. uh, it involves memory. She's manipulating it in some way. Uh, some pieces seem to be, quote, like lived experience memory, others mm -hmm. not so lived experience. So uh, there is a kind of uh, recollective mentality going on here and partly recollecting her own career yeah. uh, as well and her uh, own insularity in her, in her personal space, her studio, her collection of things which have become associated with her and somehow signal her existence. Uh, so I, I thought that was extremely interesting psychologically, so to say. Right. The, the periodness, then. Let's, let's, just, let's just confront that, because it is very interesting that, uh, that they have such um, uh, a found feel to them. Um, is that, uh, but, uh, and, uh, however, I don't know her biography intimately. I know she's a, a, a senior figure within the uh, art community, but she's definitely not old enough for these to be memories. These are late 19th century uh, images for, um, often, or else they're, uh, you know, zeppelins crashing and things. That's a, that's a very uh, time-specific kind of image. Um, uh, do, you, do you think, is there a little bit of a sort of history play going on here? It almost, almost felt like it was... Uh, a photographic um, equivalent of, sort of Neo Rausch or something, that there was a sort of uh, uh, a play on periodicity. Poshi's yeah. yeah, signaling she... that there's nothing new in some sense, and that photography has come into its own as an art, and maybe it always was an art. Well, well, aren't these all photographs of photographs? I mean, they're manipulated, they're photographs sure. of photographs, so they're already oh, really so two steps removed from the subject. But it intensifies the whole thing. I thought the most successful one, actually, was the one that um, it was a slightly larger format square, so each module was bigger, bigger, and it was almost abstract, the one of the lenses. Yeah. You know, that one stood as a work of art on its own, where it, as, a collect, as, as a grid, you could stand back from it and find some beauty in it, whereas the others, I was constantly forced to look at individual images within it. I really could not take them in as a whole. Um, in terms of the periodicity, I mean, I do think she's plan you know, she's making a comment about photography and about how we record history and about how we record our lives. And, you know, I, I don't think it's necessarily very profound or 
or original, but I think it, it wor I like the notion of the photographs of photographs and that these are images that mean something to her and that's why she bothered to mm -hmm. bring them to our attention. Mm -hmm. They have a souvenir quality to them. Yes. Laura, any last thoughts on that? It's also it's interesting that we were talking so much about the grid and kind of the, the format of, of her work because the actual, the individual images um, to me are about things that are so powerful that they're almost unspeakable. Um, a lot of it is about death, I thought, death and war and kind of the uh, banality of war, the kind of nothingness. There's a series of battle scenes um, that are, they, there's, there are no bodies in them, but you can, there's a kind of emanation that something has occurred here. And then there's the, there's a series that looks, that looks like kind of a cave painting. I'm not sure if she manipulated that or if they're, um, I'm not sure what, where, where what, what the date is, but it's just this sense of um, a pre, pre, be, before our time. This kind of, um, then it's, there's another series of um, zeppelins um, kind of in the cosmos, and there's that that was very interesting to me. It was this kind of grafting of um, very specific, um, like early modern era onto this like time in that. Could be in the extreme future. Uh, we don't, is, yeah. Yes. Well, um, I think we'll all have probably a chance to say another word on both these shows in response to comments that we hear from uh, from the floor. So let's have our roving mic, please. And please, uh, ladies and gentlemen, wait. Uh, however much you feel you uh, have a no, uh, we we take some comments because otherwise the audience loses track of everything we've been okay. talking about. Right. So we take a little bit of comment and then we we do it again. Um, uh, so, um, however beautifully trained and operatic voice you feel you have, wait for the mic because otherwise we won't be able to record you and might not be able to hear you. So uh, let's um, let's do it one show at a time. Let's start with. Uh, uh, Tatsunishi, if we could, discovering Columbus. Anybody um, have a, a, a legend to tell about their experience with this show? Any comment, any critique, any question on Columbus? Yes. My niece, who's now in her mid-twenties, came home from school long ago to say she learned about Thanksgiving, that today is the day the pilgrims came to wreck us. And I think that you won't find a, a child alive now who doesn't know that Columbus was part of a wave of colonialism or that Columbus brought spirochetes or that Columbus did all these negative things. But the thing that I enjoyed about discovering Columbus was this faux naivete, this nostalgia, this sense of rediscovering Columbus as an idol, as a hero, as an iconic figure. It was really charming. And I think a lot of people got that. Um, maybe it takes a, a foreign-born artist to do that, but it's certainly against the trend of political correctness. Um, and he was, because the statue itself is not a great statue, it's, it's yeah. kind of inexpressive, uh, not terribly interesting, it, it really made a giant kitsch statuette out of it. But also, as with kitsch, there is sentiment or it wouldn't be kitsch. There's there's mm -hmm. fondness. There's nostalgia. There's there's real sentiment underneath it, and I I like that. Yeah, I think that's a very fair point. It's not as if he was making fun of a Rodin or a, or a Mayol or something. It, it is a, a piece of uh, dated period art. So um, a statue, not a sculpture. So very good point. Yes. Any, anything more on on uh, Nishi? Uh, no. 
okay, well, let's say goodbye, Columbus, and let's um, <laughs> let's 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 see, let's get some stimulation, stimulating comments from the uh, from our audience tonight um, on Michelle Stewart. You must be bursting with things to say about <laughs> Michelle Stewart, the grid, the period feel. Yes, uh, gentlemen in the front. <laughs> Hi, this question is for Mr. Cuspit. You said you were talking to Alan Capro and you said, why, do you, why did you make the students mop the floor and call it art? Did he give you an answer to that? Or? Uh, first, I was not talking to him. Uh, I, was, I, I was aware of this whole thing uh, and so forth. But I do know this, uh, that he has positioned himself as a, a guru, as it were. Uh, and. Uh, uh, a Zen kind of experience, supposedly. So if you mop the floor, there's something Zen-like in the focus of it. Three days is a little over-focused to my mind. Uh, but uh, that was the idea. And uh, as he said, um, the whole point was to stimulate a discussion of what does it mean to be in an art school, mopping the floor of an art school, what does it mean to be making something called art or studying something called art, um, how can you locate this piece if you can locate it. So the whole point for him, as I understand, if I understand correctly, uh, was uh, whatever um, thoughts or ideas or uh, notions were generated by this event. And what was crucial for him is participation. It was the participation. Uh, so it's not exactly an installation, but it was a participation event. And uh, if you look at the early happenings, uh, which first took place in George Siegel, it was all about participation, performance, uh, what this would mean, uh, where it was located out in a farm, uh, not near uh, any art center, not in an exhibition space, etc. So you know, what happened to the halls when you mopped them? Also, you're identifying with the janitors. All this kind of social thing uh, was what he was concerned with. Yeah, the thing yeah. always the troubles one is when, when people, whether it's he's a, a Zen master or a, a, an art theorist, when they tell you to mop the floor for three days, my first question is, are you going to join us? Anyway, let's, um, okay. let's move on, if we can, to yeah. part two in the uh, PowerPoint, uh, please. Usually the people who have advice like mop the floor for three days wouldn't do it for three minutes themselves. But it's, a, it's so artistic. Yes. <laughs> Gestural. It is. Paintbrush. You, you Think can, of you, all the associations <laughs> you can do with this. You can make a, a great, a great, a great <laughs> Jasper Johns afterwards. You it can could be something. a great performance piece. It's performance. a good segue to Louise Fishman. That's oh. so <laughs> All right. Excellent. Thank you very much. Well, a little bit of a contrast of shows to think about there. Um, so, three days of mopping the floor, and uh, Louise Fishman, I don't think there is a segue there at all. Um, there's uh, uh, um, uh, many, there's a great deal of buzz in the um, painting circles I'm uh, privileged to mix in, in this uh, exhibition. Um, um, I, it certainly gave me a great deal of pleasure, uh, Nora. Um, but in trying to contemplate the nature of that pleasure and trying to sort out my uh, feelings about Fishman, um, uh, something about the, ab the, the, the nature of abstract painting, unlike, um, say, representational painting, is it? Representational painting, it, with abstract painting, 
even though we've had abstract painting since at least Kandinsky, we're, we're, we're well, well past 100 years of abstract painting, and yet it, it still feels we need to, when I look at an abstract painting, I need to feel, is this moving, uh, is this moving forward? Well, one of the paintings there is called Crossing the Rubicon. And I, I wonder, um, is, is, is Fishman one of the, um, is, is Fishman speaking to a, a very current spirit in, in abstract painting, or is she rather um, a living representative of some of the um, uh, like grand old personages that uh, uh, Chime and Reed uh, uh, exhibit? The, is she, uh, if, you, if you're not in the market for a Resnick or a, uh, uh, a Mitchell, you might want a Fishman, or if you, want, if you have a Resnick and a Mitchell, you might also want a Fishman. Uh, do, you, do you see her as a, a living example of a luxuriously uh, accomplished form of uh, uh, lyrical, uh, historical, abstract expressionism, or is she offering a challenge uh, as she crossing a Rubicon? Well, I think, I think uh, painting, more than any other art form, uh, demands time from from the viewer. It demands your time to um, to unlock its truth content if it has a truth content. Um, and with uh, Louise Fishman's work, I initially had a problem giving it that time because I was distracted by um, what you were just talking about. Her the her uh, painting language, the language of abstract expressionism, just it seemed. Um, so generic and old-fashioned um, in her hands. And I, I kept um, sort of thinking the, the phrase generic romanticism kept coming back to me. Um, not that that's necessarily a bad thing, and I'm nostalgic for, for a lot of things um, in art and in this world, but there was something that just seemed very old um, to me. Um, but her work, um, from, from the titles... Um, Violets from My Furs being a Billie Holiday song, which is actually a great title. But, um, but then I did give it more time because that's what paintings require. And I did come to find certain passages that were interesting to me where the paint began to, in a, in a sense, act on its own. Um, the, um, and I mean, I could go. I could keep speaking about that, but maybe. do we want to hear about it? The paint uh, that, that so that's that's when it began. It felt well to me. It's out almost like it's or? almost like an, an alchemical um, right. experience has to occur uh, on on the level of the painting, on the level of the surface of the painting. And my my problem with a lot of her work is that it sits so close to the surface. Even there's even though there's a lot of layers on there, there's a lot of history there. Um, I don't get a sense of a history the way I would in like a Joan Mitchell painting. Um, it's just it's something that is very difficult to, to put into words why it is different because they might look to be quite similar. Mm. But um, yeah, I almost feel if, if they were in um, bright synthetic colors and there was um, uh, that uh, or something garish and unhistorical feeling. That, they, that then it would just sort of sit quite, quite happily and naturally with a lot of current painting. Um, it's, is, it, is it perhaps, uh, Phoebe, the palette and the, the, the tenor? Uh, what is it that... What, do, these feel, do these feel like fresh paintings to you or do these feel like historical paintings? Um, I, I, would, I would sort of lean towards historical, although I think... I mean, I think she's a practitioner of uh, a genre and I think... As a practitioner of that genre, she's quite capable. Um, 
And I like the fact that she is sort of going up against, you know, I mean, I think quite deliberately the overused term of the male white patriarchy. And um, unlike Joan Mitchell, I, I think Joan Mitchell's a much better painter, and I think her work is more lyrical and emotional and poetic. Um, but I have to say that as objects, that these are, I like the palette. I like the sort of, I mean, supposedly these are quite recent works, and many of them were done while she was on residency in Venice. And... So the aquamarine tones, I find them, I mean, I find them pleasing objects to contemplate. And they're, you know, she's got a, a really good sense, I think, of composition and of, of color. And, you know, there's some impasto on the, I mean, you know, there, she's a good practitioner of an old-fashioned genre. Mm. And I would give her credit for that. I mean, is she breaking new ground? No. Is she pushing this further into the 21st or 22nd century, probably not, you know, but but it's good, it's sort of like good mediocre quality, uh, not mediocre, that was a no. good quality work of a certain, you know, it's it doesn't seem to me Middle terribly ambitious. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. It's not, mm. you know, or terribly ambitious or revolutionary. Well, it's or ambitious. Else. Yes. It's sort of like good for you, like, you know, mm. Mm. your vegetables or something. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, eating your greens, except they're yeah. gray and blue. Okay. Uh, uh, Don, are we asking the wrong questions? I mean, as, as, somebody, as a critic, as, as a philosophical critic of the notion of novelty and the, the, the historical idea of the avant-garde, are we looking at these beautiful, sumptuous, accomplished paintings uh, and asking the wrong questions and asking about their uh, contemporaneous? Uh, what, or do you, how do you respond to them? Well, I have no problem with romanticism. Myself. I think it's been around for a long time. Uh, I think uh, I prefer it to a clever kitsch myself. Um, and uh, I think the uh, white cube was doing its job very well there uh, in making that color, making these works stand out. She's basically sustaining a tradition. I like what Phoebe said. She's working in a genre. I don't know who doesn't work in a genre uh, these days anyway. Uh, uh, I think uh, everything has its mode, and she's working in a certain mode. Now, uh, I would agree with Phoebe uh, in what she says in relation to Joan Mitchell, and clearly there's a pushing of a female artist mm -hmm. there, uh, but uh, Joan Mitchell uh, was a different temperament, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. if you take seriously Rosenberg's idea of signature painting and signature signals psyche, uh, uh, they're clearly quite different. I knew Joan fairly well. Uh, I don't want to say too much about her, but she was a very disturbed woman, and she's very dramatic, and uh, a lot of her work has so-called that age of anxiety kind of thing. Yes. And uh, this doesn't have that uh, mm. age of anxiety. I mean, this is a very personal kind of gestural touch, mm -hmm. and there are different personalities, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, and again, I remind you that Venice has, uh, shall we say, sustained a lot of artists. Mm -hmm. uh, you can track it way back. Uh, it's still around. Uh, it still has its color. It's still appeal. serene, yes. Still serene, still complex color. Uh, there's a whole history of it going back, uh, take it back to Turner almost, um, Sargent and some wonderful watercolors there and so forth. Sickert. So, don't forget Sickert. Yes, Sickert <laughs> also. I don't, I don't have any, any problems with mm -hmm. this work, but I will say 
uh, it's not the strongest gesturalism. There was something that was called lyric expressionism. Mm -hmm. I believe MoMA had a show of it many years ago. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm very happy for the lyric as well as the epic, okay? I don't need uh, de Kooning swashbuckling all the time. Mm. Uh, the tension uh, is in some of the works. There's a certain drama. Other works, a little less tense, uh, a, mm. little, a little calmer, and I have no problem. Mm. Uh, and uh, I was struck by the work old uh, that was used, uh, maybe because I'm, quote, old, although I hardly feel it. Uh, but, you don't look it. Uh, well, thank you, thank you. Uh, I haven't dyed my hair yet, but I, nonetheless. It might be uh, too late. It might be too late. Uh, but my point is uh, that there is such a thing uh, of a seasoned art, okay? Mm -hmm. And I think there's an issue that this art raises being produced today, and it's the issue which was signaled uh, by Mark Rosenthal uh, at the end of his catalog essay on abstraction of the 20th century, which was for the Guggenheim where uh, he uh, raised the question is, you know, what can happen with abstraction now? Its mm -hmm. modes were there. Uh, it was formidable. Uh, the public may not be interested in it. It was too difficult. Did they get it? Etc. And uh, I would say this moves in what I would call a kind of Baroque extravagance, excess dimension without quite getting there. Really? Yes. Some, some of the works have a kind of swirling uh, we, we put some of them on uh, kind of density mm -hmm. that I would associate with certain, uh, I would say, Italian modes of Baroque rather than German. Uh, but um, so Tiepolo, you see, you see. No, I'm not uh, thinking of that. I'm thinking of some of the, uh, shall we say, swagger in uh, in uh, Bernini, oh, uh, okay. something of that sort, some of that kind of thing. I may be wrong, but some of that energy that's there. Right. Uh, kind of breaking out of the energy that's there. Okay. Uh, I don't think it's uh, fully realized mm. from that point of view, but okay. I, I see it moving to somewhere else. Um, and I think uh, what she's also making clear is that what Kandinsky, you mentioned him as sort of the, for, the pioneer abstractionist, spoke about vibrations, you may recall. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he argued... Uh, for the idiosyncra idiosyncrasy of art, that's his own term as well, mm -hmm. and mood, okay? Mm -hmm. And I think these works uh, do uh, create, evoke a certain mood. They have, uh, for me, sufficient idiosyncrasy uh, to suggest an individuality, mm -hmm. uh, uh, a personality, mm -hmm. although I somehow think it's not a completely fulfilled personality. Okay. Uh, or at least not dense Thanks. Thanks. Okay, good. Good, good. Otherwise, uh, <laughs> I like the stuff. I like we like getting it. pleasure, like pleasure I mean, from color. We're getting pleasure from it. It's, and they it's, look finished. They look, I mean, to me, they do look complete. I don't, I don't think she, I mean, I would just say I don't think she's pushed the genre further. That's what I mean. But she's yeah. an excellent practitioner. Yeah, you I can't agree. go yeah. in there and not think... Is it like hearing, it's like hearing traditional jazz. It's like, it's like hearing somebody paintings. who's not making you know, a weird noise that throws us out of our seat. Uh, is but is producing some beautiful jazz, but then you say, okay, it's beautiful jazz, but um, Charlie Parker did that. And then, so then, then, then you can come back and say, well, that's the wrong question. A beautiful jazz is beautiful jazz, period. Don't confuse the issue by bringing in Charlie Parker. So is it, is it confusing the issue to bring in uh, Franz Klein? Um, no, because those are the obvious references, and because mm. you can't really take her out of the context of, of art history. Yes. I mean, 
there were people that were antecedent to her that if she's not yeah. that she's certainly familiar with even if she's not referencing them specifically. One could almost say actually though uh, when we look at somebody who's very hip and young and doing something uh, abrasive and quote-unquote new it's it's referencing something from a year well, two years or three Cecily years ago. Brown, okay? She's well, not Cecily Brown okay she's not trying no, to do no, Cecily Brown. Let's keep the scale. She's, but she's a contemporary young abstract artist you could argue even though her work is more narrative and it has more figuration in it it's yeah. still in the tradition of abstract expressionism but if yeah. you look at it it's it's she's trying to push the envelope whereas I don't think I think Louise Fishman deeply feels these paintings and yeah. produces them and you they feel um, truthful she they feel like she's executed what she meant to execute and she has the tools to do it, which is rare enough in... She knows her medium. Yeah, and it's, yeah. that's rare enough right. in any gallery that you walk into in yeah. Chelsea. I mean, it's almost startling, yeah. which is maybe why you think it's old-fashioned. And I love things that are not abrasive in this city. Yeah. It's just wonderful to walk in somewhere, and even, I'm not a big fan of abstract expressionism at all, uh -huh. and yet you walk in there and you think, okay, on, on the terms of what she's trying to do with these paintings, these are beautiful, accomplished paintings. Yeah. She's Actually, I think she has an ambivalent relationship with, with beauty. Um, I, I feel like the paintings, they were, I had trouble locating the body. When I look at abstract painting, um, I make abstract paintings as well. Um, the body, not in, in the sense of like a de Kooning, like woman one or something, but the body, the body of the artist and the body of the viewer looking at the painting. And with her work, one of my problems is that I didn't, I didn't see the, I didn't feel the body present. Um, in some of them, they're, they're more, more than others. Um, why do you need the body anyway? Yeah, I don't know. I would never look for the body in that. I'm not not actually like a physical body. It's more of a sensation. Yeah, I don't, really. she doesn't mean a, she does not mean a representation. I do not mean a representational no. body. The body that's I mean, because uh, we talk a lot about feeling and authentic feeling, and I think um, it's with her work. She seems to be saying, "I'm having an authentic feeling. These are my feelings. I was in Venice, and for me, it's almost like someone's hitting over the head with that." Um, and let's compare her to. I mean, people who are her peers, Mary Heilman, Cora Cohen, I mean, mm. I think it's more um, productive to do that than to talk about someone like Franz Klein. That's true. Or, She's, uh, she belongs to a generation. Remember, she was in the show upstairs, a very memorable show, the uh, High Times, Hard Times show. So really, uh, her, her peer group would include... Ron uh, Gorchov. Well, yes, mm. uh, as an, as an Just, older member, but certainly uh, would, would, would include um, uh, Joan Snyder and David sure. Yao and quite a number of the artists in the uh, conceptual abstraction show at the moment at, at Hunter College um, mm -hmm. and, and a number of other uh, uh, historic figures, uh, not, not historic, uh, she has a, a peer group and um, it seems to me that her work um, is a lot more trad than, than most of uh, those uh, peers and when you, when the, other, the other thing is though that um, uh, when I look at, uh, I mean, I like, I thought this is one of her best shows and I got pleasure from it. Um, uh, I love the fact that um, it has the, the, that Venetian mist quality to it. I'm, in a, I'm a sort of Venice nut and uh, can't, can never get enough of it in a way, especially if it's the kind of um, sicker Turner version of, of Venice. Um, uh, but uh, it seemed odd, though, that somebody who's as concerned uh, in, her, in these paintings with atmosphere rather than with, uh, and, and I, here I agree with 
Nora, rather than the body making, uh, making the gestures. Uh, it's, it's odd that the brush is such a strong element in uh, compositional and structural element in all these paintings. Why, why does she not, why, why, what is she saying to us in the um, almost uh, ubiquity of uh, the, the, the brush stroke I mean, I mean, the actual, you, I can see in my mind's eye the brushes she must be using. Uh, they're thick and they're wide. And they, uh, uh, that stripe and lozenge, um, yeah, I want to say, that doesn't give me mist and, 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 and the sea. So why, why the brush? Anybody? Anybody want to make a spirited defense of the brush in these fishmeats? There's some density in some of the works, and certainly that is related to, quote, Venice in some way also. It's uh, not exactly evaporating all the time, you know, so uh, that's it. But uh, she may be signaling, you know, the, in some way referring back to the early expressionistic yeah. handling. Uh, no, she's using that language. She's using an older language exactly. uh, deliberately, I think. Which makes one wonder if she's in some sense quoting in some hmm. sense. Yeah, I, I didn't entirely clear. Uh -huh. You see, uh, my fear is that the brush is to Fishman uh, what the grid is to Stuart. It's just a received given that has, isn't right. really being thought through as mm -hmm. in its use. I would agree with that. All right. Okay. Well, when I get distinguished people saying I agree with that, it goes straight to my head. And uh, before we have time to disagree, uh, let's move to our last show. Well, it's, uh, it's election season. And there's one vote for sale in uh, Ohio. Uh, not for sale. Sale's the wrong, the wrong point. But um, uh, this, uh, this man with conflicted loyalties, he tells us, on the one hand, uh, he voted for um, uh, Barack Obama in the last time. He had an opportunity to do so. He's, a, he's an artist. Therefore, he has to be a liberal, right? Uh, but at the same time, uh, the gentleman, uh, Casey Jack Smith, is... Uh, 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 a devout Mormon, um, and this uh, has arisen, therefore, the conflict that uh, many people have for some reason in America. Do I vote with my uh, brain and do what's best for the whole nation, or do I um, um, act on a tribal um, instinct? Um, it's, it's odd that people should give public, um, uh, uh, should actually publicize that this is a dilemma for them, but it seems, it seems that you have cases where, uh, you know, uh, People who would naturally support um, one cause uh, come out and say, but I've got to vote for the woman, or I've got to vote for the African-American, or whatever, who's on the other side of the cause. And it seems to be this is possibly the case also with Mormonism. Now, throw into the mix that this person is not only uh, a, a devout Mormon, uh, but he is also um, um, a, a, um, uh, a very enthusiastic player of Dungeons and Dragons, and then we get one very complicated and complex uh, exhibition in which uh, a, a game is also being played out for his vote, because he's split between doing what he thinks is best for the country and supporting a co-religionist. Uh, this vote apparently can be swayed one way or the other in a complex game that involves looking at some very dense imagery at the Allegra La Viola Gallery, uh, and we could possibly get one more swing vote in Ohio. Well, okay. Um, Phoebe. Um, <laughs> Are you still digesting this imagery? Are you blown away by this show? I, um, I show? think that your description gives it, the show so much more credit than I would <laughs> give it. Um, 
I think it's, you know, it's a clever premise. I will go with the press release that says he's a devout Mormon. Um, I mean, certainly he's an obsessive compulsive um, based on the sort of, you know, intricacy of these teeny little obsessive drawings. Um, the show did nothing for me. I wasn't there the night of the opening when I guess they actually had two competitors playing out the Dungeons and Dragons game, of which I also know nothing. But, um, I mean, I was impressed that the guy put so much work into it and that he was operating in a number of different media. Um, he has little sculptures, he has drawings, he has paintings, he has a video game. I mean, it's he covers all the bases. But it actually didn't cohere for me at all. I, I didn't get it at all, and I didn't find it really very interesting, despite the, you know, as the sort of convergence of elements that you're describing that really should have made it interesting, it, it, it was meaningless to me. Right. I mean, I might as well, I mean, it was just like, you know, snow on a TV set to me. Yes. May, may have been a bit, even a bit like um, being thrown into a convention of Dungeons and Dragons enthusiasts and like Phoebe and myself not knowing anything about or perhaps even wanting to know anything about this uh, this um, game, this very much this anorak type game. Um, well, uh, uh, Phoebe, I'm sorry, you're Phoebe. Yeah, Nora. Uh, <laughs> Nora. Um, uh, whatever else is or isn't going on in this show, and whatever it means, and whatever we're to make of it, um, uh, the, the 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 languages uh, deployed, the the hand, the uh, the script, the um, uh, deep symbolism, um, or perhaps the not so deep symbolism, um, does put one in mind of all, all kinds of uh, contemporary artists, uh, uh, many of whom congregate at the uh, Pierogi Gallery, for instance, in Brooklyn. Um, I almost think of this as being somebody with totally different worldview and taste and style, but somehow, nonetheless, one sort, one weird thing in common with the late. Mark Lombardi. Um, is this a sort of Mark Lombardi with bad taste? I mean, what, 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 would, you, what would you say? Oh, I mean, he, yeah, he's definitely he's a very skilled illustrator. Um, I was sort of reminded of Zap Comics, mm-hmm. um, almost like a less imaginative R. Crumb. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I agree with Phoebe. I just found the, the work um, pretty disturbing in its uh, cynicism. Um, and completely devoid of imagination, uh, completely cut off from social reality, and especially in this election, which is so um, critically important uh, for our country, for the world, the fact that this artist would put so much effort into creating a show and then um, making the gesture of giving away his vote to whoever won this Dungeons & Dragons game. I didn't see it. just found that gesture um, incredibly in negative. And yes. Right. Um, uh-huh. um, uh, Don, uh, 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 it seems to me almost sort of. Um, uh, it, it's, uh, Harold Bloom has said that uh, the Church of Latter Day uh, Saints is the closest that America has come to an authentic Gnosticism. Uh, and then to hear uh, somebody who, as well as being a devout Mormon, is also a player of a game that uh, uh, is incredibly uh, uh, complex and. Uh, um, um, arcane and um, Arturian and uh, uh, Tolkien in its um, in its its symbolism. To hear that somebody with, who's got a religion that's already uh, highly symbolist and brings another 
uh, game of symbolism to it. To hear Nora say that he lacks imagination, that's um, put the two together, that's quite a contrasting uh, setup. What, what do you think? What, do, you, do you feel that there's a kind of charge of something Gnostic in, in, in Smith's use of symbolism? No, uh, I don't. But uh, let me say I agree with both uh, Nora and Phoebe, but I would just throw in a few other ideas. I first agree that he's an illustrator, and he's a decent illustrator. I don't know how great it is, but he's an illustrator. Um, I also think he's trying to be topical uh, mm -hmm. in more ways than one. It's not just the, this election which is coming up, uh, which I do think is important for the United States, maybe for the world, although I think the new Chinese Politburo will be more important for the world than the American election, but it's my own opinion. But anyway, uh, it would have been nice if he had something about China in, in that. It was a sort of hodgepodge uh, exhibition. He was showing that he could do different things. He understood color, uh, games are trendy. Uh, I wonder if he was, uh, I, I somehow got a sense that he's obsessive compulsive. And uh, what came to mind uh, was the fact that in the 2013 Diagnostic Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Society, there will be the first time a listing of internet addiction. Uh, okay, so I wonder if in some sense he's signaling various addictions, uh, not only dragons and whatever, but uh, art to art, addiction to art, and he's got some nice colorful pieces, some very nice col color there, you know, very charming. So. This guy is addictive. Now, about the Mormons, it's extremely interesting. It sort of raises some crazy thoughts in my mind. Um, the Mormons, remember, uh, can uh, baptize uh, people who are already dead. Uh, there was a big controversy a few years ago when they baptized the family of some prominent uh, Jews, and they apologized for doing that. Also, I understand that a very good Mormon gets a planet of his or her own. Uh, in the uh, future and somewhere I'm, I'm telling you the truth. So uh, one guy might get one of his own right uh, on November 6th. On November 6th. <laughs> and of course Romney was a bishop, I remind you. He was a bishop. And if you've read something about his biography, he was, uh, when he was born, his family sort of regarded him as the promised son, uh, really. So um, I think that... Um, our artist is profoundly confused about his identity. Mm -hmm. um, I, I uh, think that he is uh, uh, trying to be, in some sense, hip-hop, or whatever you call it these days, uh, and not quite sure what he's hipping or hopping on, uh, or what the ground is underneath him. Uh, so it's very interesting as a cultural or social mm -hmm. phenomena. Uh, it's a sort of uh, hot, hot pseudo-outsider art, something like that. Yeah, there's a little uh, bit of the, I'm a Mormon, therefore I'm an outsider yeah, feel to this. Yeah. I, I, um, you know, just to finish up on politics, I, yeah. uh, which is worse to have in the White House, uh, a bishop or a pawn. But uh, oh. uh, uh, that said, mm -hmm. uh, that said... I just wanted to say that, um, I, you know, there's two... I, to me, there was something troublingly cultish. Mm -hmm. There's a feeling oh, yeah. that he was programmed. Like, I, I, I mean, I, I'm oh. not... Con Fusing Mormon, the Mormon religion with um, Scientology, but I got this, the combination of the devout religion and the symbology of that and the addiction to the Dungeons and Dragons and using that as a template through which to see the election, I almost felt like he was a member of a cult. And then on top of that, he sort of 
sampling the elements of these, like, mm -hmm. you know, the hip-hop that Donald brought up. I mean, mm. he, he doesn't, he has, like, ADD, you know. Yeah, it, it's a very, I mean, Donald, I think what Donald didn't finish saying, maybe, is that it's a very good, of all the shows, it might be the most psychoanalytic statement about the artist who made it. Mm -hmm. right. um, you get more of the who this artist is, or who he isn't, or who he thinks he is, or who he doesn't know he is, mm -hmm. than from any of the other shows. But surely At the that's, same time, surely it's the least yeah. successful But it may be a symbol also of the larger confusion and fragmentation of the art world. And, and he does a sampling thing, too, that DJs yeah, do. And sampling he's, is a good word. He's like mm. sampling across the media and across different imagery. But I still couldn't get away from this sort of robot cult feeling like he'd been programmed and like he was just spitting out this imagery that he'd mm. been brainwashed with. But surely he's... Uh, so self-conscious uh, and so um, he's there's a is a I'm, I'm not in love with this show obviously but um, uh, I would say that it's 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 patently obvious the guy's got a sense of humor I mean he's he's about he's got a sense of distance from himself as well I mean yeah okay obsessive compulsive of course but that does count from you know two-thirds of the artists in Brooklyn um, but uh, uh, you've also, you've got somebody here when somebody is the parading point. the Mormon uh, uh, articles of faith, showing us the most weird and obscure um, uh, details of the, the symbolism of that faith, but without really giving you um, uh, the, the, the positive gel that makes that symbolism meaningful to the practitioner. And then on top of it, laying on what's uh, another uh, super nerdish complex system of Dungeons and Dragons. I mean, one or the other of those two systems of uh, symbolism would be Masonic enough in its uh, uh, bewildering uh, uh, complexity. Uh, but putting both together, it seems to be he. It seems to be a very self-conscious state, uh, uh, almost narcissistic parade of nerdishness. He say, you know, come, come, look at me and my anorak. It, it seems to be sort of saying. Um, uh, don't you think that the, there's a self-conscious nerdishness? Uh, uh, actually, a sort of, um, just picking up on what one of my panelists, co-panelists said, uh, uh, a sort of willful uh, pseudo-outsider quality to the work? Well, definitely. And I think also the, the way the work is installed, too, it's, it's not, um, I think a few pieces are frames, but a lot of the drawings are just um, tacked to the wall with, with push pins. Mm -hmm. And um, these are very meticulously, these drawings took, took hours, days. You know, mm -hmm. they, they're not casual drawings by any means, but the casualness that, um, how they're attached to the wall, mm -hmm. um, I found that, that disturbing, too. Um, and I sort of, I, it, it brought to mind, um, in like being in high school and doodling in a, in a notebook and that, that kind of mindset where you're not, you're not totally focused, but you're, you're obsessively doing something else. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So like the, the this kind of adolescent quality that permeated everything. Yeah. Adolescent. Like it was sort of like welcome to my clubhouse and we're about mm -hmm. to do the hazing and it, once you have right. the hazing, you'll get all this stuff, which right. you're not going to get because it doesn't communicate otherwise. That's the problem, I think, with this show. <laughs> I, I got nothing against uh, three layers of arcane symbolism if they add up to the magic flute. Uh, but uh, <laughs> it seems the, the art might have been... It seems that art is what's missing in this art exhibition, yeah. to be honest. Uh, but let's see if our audience wishes to challenge us first on our misreading of the radical, innovatory nature of Louise Fishman, and second, on our disgraceful inability to see both the art and the meaning in Casey Jack Smith. Um, 
any either, which don't, don't worry about it, whichever you want to say first, uh, let's, let's get going. Let's just have some comments. And comments are better than questions at this stage. Um, well, one word that I think that last, well, I sort of see actually all four of the artists now in like a good arc, beginning with Alan Capro, bringing up the question of what is art and what are we doing with it, and then ending with this like uh, usage of art as pure escapism. And it seemed like that was the word that was coming up with all of those comments um, and, and the sort of disturbing usage of art as pure escapism from the world. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, but, and then Louise Fishman, for example, uh, as this sort of late expressionist trying to like this brush idea, like almost a desperation to hold on to um, like using your medium rather than Michelle, who I think uh, like many of us trying to make work today feel this pressure to make a comment on your uh, your medium or your genre. So the kind of the frame is such a heavy burden now. Like there, I think in, at the end of the day, we all sort of want to just heave that off, but yet there's a responsibility now or something. There's a heavy question of, and by very smart people um, like Alan Capro, just being like, what are you, let's question this. What are we, what are we doing this, with this? And why is this meaning sort of already um, like so, sometimes on the work or something? So yeah, yeah that, it was Thank actually you for very, Thank you for a very, them all very interesting for Great. Thanks. Thanks very much for tying all four together. That's that's a, a, a thought-provoking move. Thanks for that. Uh, any other comments on the, the the last two shows we've seen, the uh, Smith and the Fishman? Um, be be um, uh, yes, sir. Um, on the on the uh, Smith, uh, my first reaction to it was 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 very negative. Uh, I thought it was just much. Too complex and weird, and uh, and I also felt it was sort of pseudo outsider, but I wonder if we're maybe doing him a bit of an injustice just because he's a trained artist and a decent illustrator. I mean, maybe he's really exploring his own very weird hang-ups with Mormonism, and when I keep thinking of that picture of Romney. Looking like Joseph Smith, or with a big, with a beard, and then Obama looking like some kind of evil wizard. Uh, it just struck me as maybe that's what's going through his head. Maybe yes. that's why he's afraid to vote for Obama and, yeah. <laughs> and thinks he has to vote for Romney. Well, there must be some log cabins in Ohio filled with such minds, and uh, <laughs> it may be that the future of civilization depends on what their mood is on November the sixth. But uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I, possibly. We're, we're, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyone feel they want to respond to? Well, the question is how many wives Smith has. Yes, um, if he wants to identify with the original Smith. Okay, uh, but I think the art is dressed to a certain peer group. Myself, mm. Um, mm. and uh, that is the cult aspect. And you know, 
you, you, you go along with it or you don't go along with it. And I also think uh, he's confused between what used to be called anti-art and mm -hmm. what art is. I mean, he's trying to touch every base, as mm -hmm. it were, uh, can do this and that. Mm -hmm. uh, and I frankly got a sense it was sort of uh, kind of art school art, mm -hmm. uh, if I may say so. Um, nothing wrong with art schools, a place where you educate yourself to mm -hmm. do hopefully every possible thing rather than get bogged down in one style, as sure. unfortunately happens. There's nothing wrong with kindergarten except when you're 45. <laughs> That's yes. right, yes. Mm. Um, I also somehow felt that he wasn't serious about Mormonism. That, uh, right, yeah. I, I'm not sure uh, that he, he knows what it is about apart from some of the symbols. I don't think he's aware of its uh, development mm. uh, and its respectability that it's had for a while. Mm -hmm. uh, it's become, uh, I think it was Bloom, in fact, who said it, it's no longer a religion, it's a movement. And he compared, mm. it's, it's a people, rather, and he compared right. it to the Jews. Right, exactly. He said that. And the Mormons have thought of themselves as the lost tribe of Jews. That's part of what's there. So uh, that would make it also uh, more peer groupish or in-groupish or whatever you want to call it. Um, if I may just say so, I like the tying together of all of these works. Um, and if I may be so so bold and uh, negative to say so, there was something about them all as a group that was flat, stale, and unprofitable. Okay? Right, right. Uh, as a group. Uh, you know, certain choices were made. Um, they're interesting. Uh, it remind me of Hegel's remark that after Romanticism, which he thought would be the last great movement, symbolism, mm -hmm. classicism, romanticism, all art, he said famously, would be interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, he didn't live to the present time to see just how interesting it was, it would become, uh, but uh, he thought actually Christian art was the last, was the romantic art. He said that explicitly in his uh, right. lecture. So, uh, maybe you can throw in some nature there. So, you know, the question is maybe this that uh, is implicated in, in all of what we're saying or what I'm trying to say. Um, it used to be, and going to Hegel, that art had, quote, a big idea. You know, it was, it was about a big idea. Mm -hmm. And I don't quite see a big idea in any of this art. Now, maybe art doesn't need a big idea anymore. Right. You know, maybe it doesn't have have to serve a big idea. You know, most art in the past is connected to the mm -hmm. religion of the state, whether you like the religion of the state or not, it's another question, you know? Right. Um, uh, but it was informed by this. Mm -hmm. you, know, you, you may not like Christianity, but Grunewald is extraordinary, okay? Right. As art, and without Christianity, where would Grunewald be? It's not entirely clear. Uh, so uh, that, I think, is one of the issues uh, that art has faced since the beginning of modernism. In fact, I think after symbolism, myself, uh, mm -hmm. where the big idea was the unconscious, explicitly stated by Redon in Dream Portfolio. And it's not clear that that's around now. So you have all kinds of different sources for art. Maybe and internet addiction will be the new Christian art for I'm, the- I'm sorry? Maybe internet addiction will internet be the addiction? new uh, equivalent of Christian art and mm -hmm. romanticism for, um, it's not exactly transcendent for, for, into for, that addiction. Uh, it's not, uh, it not, doesn't transfigure uh, you. Uh, 
uh, well, let's see. Uh, let, maybe the next Grunwald uh, will be transfigured by his uh, internet addiction, if not by his Mormon faith, his love of Venice and brushstrokes, uh, his, his obsession with uh, uh, photographs uh, of the past and uh, grids, uh, or, or with uh, building tree houses on Columbus Circle. So let's ponder these philosophical uh, conundra and enjoy the rest of the evening. Goodbye. Uh, well...